Yeah? Okay. James chapter 1. Get this thing booted up here. Um, so, I'm sure, looking at everybody here, I know you, you've all been around the block a little bit. And you've all heard it said, maybe at times when someone's trying to encourage you and you've not really wanted to hear it, but I'm sure uh, you've all heard it said, when life hands you lemons, you're to what? Make lemonade. And, you know, I went online and did some just kind of searching of that quote to try to figure out where it, it came from. And I couldn't really come up with anything, but there are a lot of alternative cliches that people uh, insert there that I wouldn't recommend in regards to life handing you lemons and what you should do. (laughs) But the idea behind this cliche, as we well know, is that we should take the very hard and difficult things of life that we have been handed and look to make the best of it, right? Right? That's kind of the idea behind that, that thinking. And there's lots of other cliches and, and sayings that people promote or, or, or quote in order to kind of convey that, that, that idea. But taking the sour-tasting things that we've been handed and turning them into something sweet or tasty is often hard to do, is it not? Yet, the Bible encourages us, and it instructs us to do so, to do this. And not only is it, is it encouraging us to do this and instructing us to doing this, it's telling us that, um, for a believer, that this is possible. And not only is it possible, but it's beneficial, that there's fruit in this, that it's a good thing. And all throughout the Bible, there are example after example of of godly men and women who had uh, done this and where they had turned their defeats into victories and those trials that they were facing into a triumph. And instead of, I love this party the most because um, there seems to be this promotion of this mentality in our society today. But when we do that, when these men and women of the Bible did this, what we see more importantly is that they, instead of becoming the victim, they became the victor. And, and I here to tell you, there's like this glorification within our society today of, of, of victimization and, and this identification that people want to have with being some kind of victim, Right? Well, in Christ Jesus, all that stuff goes away. And we can become victors rather than a victim. And, and, and I love that. And in, these, in this chapter, we're going to try to get through the first 12 verses. But in the first 12 verses of this chapter, as we begin to go through the book of James, here verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, we see that James tells us that we can have these same um, experiences today. And in a biblical way, and, and with, with, with a biblical mandate for it. And um, no matter what the trial is, we, through our faith in Jesus, can experience this victory that, that we desire to have in the midst of a trial or in the midst of a tribulation, wherein each one of us really goes, I know I'm going through hard things, and I want to go through it 
in a godly way, where I'm responding in godly ways, but where I can also have a peace that the Bible says that can surpass understanding of the situation, and a joy that the Bible says that we're supposed to have even when the outward circumstances appear to not be joyful, right? And, and, and we want that, that victory experience. And as a result of these kinds of, of victories, when, we, when the result of or the fruit of that kind of a victory, right, is really a spiritual maturity. And like I talked about last week, this book is all about spiritual maturity, growing. And so this, the, when we have these victories, it's because there's maturity, spiritual maturity in our lives. However, if we're going to turn our trials into our, our trials into triumphs, what we must we must take in a heed and apply to our lives these key things that James is instructing us with. And today, while I was down here studying, and it is like I was going to be completely honest. I'm not making any kind of apologies for the Word of God, guys, because the Word of God alone has the power to change our lives. It alone has the power. To save us. And, and the salvation that God has for us is more than just a salvation from eternal death. The salvation that he has for us is life and eternal life and life abundantly. And so there's a salvation that we get to partake of right here and right now. And, and, but with that being said, I want to tell you, I mean, there's many times I just had to get up today and walk away from the desk and from the word of God and just go, just kind of keel over and just go, oh, this guy got punched again. And, and the book of James is like that. It's just like, it's, and, and it's, it's done in love, and it's done with mercy, and it's done with grace, because God really wants us to grow, and, and growing can be painful. And so um, with that, I want to point out that in, in verse 2, which we're going we're gonna to read and we're going to look at, in regards to the instructions, I want to I want to simplify it. I want to break it down to the very base things that James is telling us, and he's telling us pretty straightforward anyway. But I want us to have clear focus as we go through this. and And in verse two, I want you to see that James is telling us really four specific instructions. Number one, he's telling us first in James two to to count or to count right, and then in verse three, he's telling us to know. In verse 4, he's telling us to let, and in verse 5, he's telling us to ask. Four, um, four instructions, count, know, let, and ask. And there's, there's a roadmap here for us. And, and in light of these four instructions, James is telling us that we are in need of four essential things if we're going to have this victory that we're talking about in times of trouble. If we're going to have a joyful attitude in times of trouble, if we're going to have an understanding mind in times of trouble, if we're going to have a surrendered will in times of trouble, and if we're going to have a heart that wants to believe in times of trouble. Here's, here's the keys. Here's the instructions for those things. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and read these first 12 verses, and uh, we'll go from here. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal truth to us, and God, that we would um, be willing to accept and to do the thing that might be hard or uncomfortable in our own lives, Lord, knowing and trusting and believing, 
God, that um, you're only asking us to do the thing that um, is going to be beneficial for us. Lord, that you have good intentions by telling us and showing us these things that can be sometimes difficult to hear and to apply to our lives. Father, we ask that as we hear them and receive them, that you would give us courage to come to you in faith. And Father, power by your Holy Spirit in order that we might walk in the way, God, that you've called us to and and are calling us to again this evening. Father, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 1 again, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And last week we introduced the book and went through all of what that means here. And as we go on, he says, My brethren, brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So, verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, as a flower of the field, he will pass away for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits and that might those verses 9 through 11 may seem a little out of place and kind of odd to us but but James is exemplifying a principle that he's just made in the previous verses. I want you to know that, but we're going to connect those dots as we get to that, that point. But it's all kind of building to what verse 9 and 11 is, is, is showing us in regards to an application to a principle. So, if you look back to verse 2, as we look at this first instruction to count it all joy, we must understand. And you know, First of all, that can be kind of offensive, can't it? <laughs> Have you ever had somebody that's uh, disingenuous, perhaps, in their approach to you, and you're bearing your heart, and they're like, well, you know, brother, count it all joy. And, and man, you, you just want to sock them in the nose. I, I'm just, yeah, I just, that's sometimes how I feel. And, and it's true, but, but James is not really coming at us and he's, as much as he is coming alongside of us. And I love that fact, and it's being revealed here in verse 2, where he just simply says, hey, brother, brother. He's putting it on an equal playing field. Again, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader over the church in Jerusalem, he's coming alongside us, and he's saying, I'm, I'm just like you. I understand this. And, and it's a reminder for us all that, you know, and Chuck and I were talking about this just in relationship, how we relate to people. We've got to be very careful. We're not coming at people. Count it all joy. You know, but rather you're able to get in the trenches with them. You're willing to have a compassionate heart that comes alongside them and go, you know what, count it all joy. And, and let, me, let me 
weep with you and rejoice with you as we go through this together. And, and, and James, as he, he, he gives this instruction to count it all joy, what we have to understand is we must understand what we're being called to is really an outlook and an attitude. And, and, and we have to understand that our outlook during a, 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 a trial will determine the outcome. And, and I know that can seem a little uh, foreign of a statement because it's almost like you're saying that it's a mind over matter kind of a thing. That if I have this kind of mindset, then this is how it's going to turn out. That's not what I'm saying. And, and I'll explain it to you because I don't think our outlook can necessarily control the circumstances or the outcome of the circumstances. But our outlook does have a control over certain things. And so keep in mind that in mind as I, I make this truth known where I point out that our outlook during a trial will determine the outcome. Your outlook during a trial will determine the outcome. It will. Furthermore, our attitude in the, in, 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 in the midst of a trial, our attitude in the midst of a trial determines how we act. Count it all joy. Outlook and attitude. And so if we want to have the right outcome and we want to have the right actions in the midst of a, of, of, of a trial, we have to get focused in what is right from the very beginning. So God's word tells us, first of all, to expect trials. And some of this is going to seem real just like, I know this one. But sometimes we know this one, but we don't know this one when we get in the midst of it, and, and, and God's word tells us, and I have to bring it up because it's here, it tells us to expect trials. And here in verse two, James says, not if you fall into various trials, but when you fall into various trials. And that's important to understand and for us to really let it sink into our hearts and mind because if our outlook on trials is to first of all expect, okay, if you have this outlook and it's not this doom and gloom where you're like Charlie Brown and like, oh, it's going to happen to me again. I just know it. I'm just waiting. You know, how about you guys? Have you had that? It's just going too good. And you're like, I know the shoe's going to drop, right? And it's like God's going to pull the carpet out from underneath me on this one. And, and that's not at all how God is. And that's not what we're being instructed to do in regards to an outlook that we're to have. It's not a doom and gloom kind of a thing. But nevertheless, we are told here when we fall into various trials. And if our outlook on trials is to expect our lives to be something contrary to what we're being told here. In other words, if we're expecting our lives to be easy, just because we're followers of Jesus Christ who do God's will and obey God's will, we're going to be caught off guard when a trial comes. You're going to be caught off guard. You're going to be surprised. And when you're caught off guard, what, you, what that really equates to is the fact that you're unprepared, right? Emotionally, spiritually, you're unprepared. And, and even though doing and obeying God's will, because sometimes that seems to be what, what we use as a measure to qualify or quantify if we are deserving of a trial, right? It's like we get in the midst of the trial and it's like, God, I've done nothing wrong here right? I'm in your will. I've obeyed. And yet this thing, 
And, and, and as if that somehow is supposed to exempt us <laughs> from trials and tribulations. And certainly it does from certain kinds of trials and tribulations. And I, and I want to point that out because even though doing and obeying God's will, first of all, fills us with a peace and keeps us from what I want to say a self-inflicted trial. Anybody ever had any of those? Yeah. Even though it keeps us from self-inflicted trials, Jesus, with his own words, told his disciples that we will experience tribulations. We're going to have hard times. We're going to face trials. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, when he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Again, it's a reference to this victory and this peace that we can have even in the midst of the trial or tribulation when we're, when we're faced with these things as a result of just simply being in the world. In other words, as we consider our outlook and attitude in regards to trials, we need to understand first and foremost that our decision for Jesus puts us in this place where the world is going to oppose us. We have an adversary, the Bible says. And as a result of these things, our lives are going to be filled with battles. And so we can see these trials and tribulations, the non-self-inflicted ones, really as the Bible classifies them in the book of, 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 of uh, Galatians where it talks about spiritual battles and not battling against flesh and blood, that they're really a spiritual battle that we're, that we're engaging in or have been brought into. Furthermore, as we consider various trials that he speaks about here, that, that James writes about here, we have to keep in mind that some trials are, are simply just the result of being a human. A human that is living in a fallen world. For example, a sickness or a disease, an accident, a disappointment, and, and even at times a tragedy. That can be part of this various trials that James is speaking about. And the Apostle Peter, he calls our attention to these kinds of things and about being caught off guard or thinking that they won't happen to us. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he says, Beloved, <laughs> do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partaking of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding, exceeding joy. In other words, expect trials. Be prepared, and in doing so, you're going to be in this place where you'll be able to rejoice in the way that the Bible speaks about here. It's the outlook that brings us to this place. It's an attitude that reveals as a result of the outlook. Be prepared to rejoice when you have them. Now, in order to make a distinction between these kinds of various trials and this um, self or these self-inflicted kind of trials that we occasionally enter into, James uses the word fall in verse 2. And it's important to understand that this, this word fall or fall into this phrase is not suggesting that our trials are the result of, 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 of a stupid act or that they somehow come upon us by accident. And sometimes we think that. We think that, well, this was an accident. On the contrary, when we consider the Greek word here, which is peripito, 
um, that is being used, it, it literally means to encounter. And if you, think you're, if you think about your life or this journey of faith that we're on as, as traveling down a road, there's certain things that you're going to encounter on your journey. And in regards to our spiritual walk and this journey of faith, what James is telling us here by using that Greek word is he's saying, these are things that you are going to encounter as part of the journey. And when we're given the understanding that these various trials are intentional, because that's, that's, that's what we're being told here, is that they're, that they're intentional and that they're purposely placed into our path, it helps us also with the outlook, right? They're intentionally there. They're purposefully there. In addition to this, there's another Greek word um, that I want to point out, and it's the, the word poiaikilos. And it's, it, it's translated to that word various. So you have the, the Greek word for fall, but there's also a Greek word for various. And that word simply means multicolored. Various, multicolored. And I love that. And I love the fact that the apostle Peter uses this exact same word again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, when he said this. He said, in this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, by multicolored trials. And I love this because there's a point being explained to us. And the point is, is that the, these, these multicolored trials, these various trials that we encounter, which are intentional and purposeful, they, they, they have a beautiful purpose because they're multicolored. If, 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 if everything in the world was all one color, how boring would that be? If an artist was to paint only in one color without even any contrast, it would, it would, not, it wouldn't, it would be boring. And, and, and what, what James is speaking about in relationship to these, using this word in relationship to trials, saying that they're, they're multicolored, He's given us a picture, and, and, I, and, and one of the things that pops into my mind is this is, is in regards to tapestry or in regards to, to cross-stitch, where there's multicolored pieces of thread and yarn that is being used in order to create this beautiful image for us to look at and to enjoy. And we know that it's usually a master weaver or a master sewer is able to create this beautiful thing with, the, with this multicolored yarn. And so, too, as we see that God's intentionally and purposely putting these multicolored trials in our lives, we see that God is working in us and through the multicolored trials that we encounter on this journey of faith in order to create something that's beautiful. Again, it's the outlook. However, it's our human tendency to not count our trial as joy, which we're being instructed to do, because we look at the trial and we do not consider it to be a work of God, or we do not consider how it is a work of God. It's easy to do in someone else's life, we go, oh, God's just doing this wonderful work in you, brother. But yet when we're in the midst of it, it's, 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 if we don't have the right attitude, if we don't have the right outlook, we're not going to see it as that in the moment. Why? Because it's a step of faith, right? Of trusting that God knows what he is doing. And even if we acknowledge that God is doing a work, we have a hard time with the joy in the trial because we're often only looking at the backside of God's work when we're in the midst of it. 
And if you've ever seen the backside of a piece of cross-stitch or the backside of a piece of tapestry that hangs on a wall, you'll know what I mean. Because on the front side, even though there's a beautiful picture for all to see, on the back side, there's just loose pieces of yarn, knots for binding, and a collection of various colors that make no kind of pattern or picture at all. And it's safe to say that the backside appears to be just full of chaos. And sometimes that's how we look at the trial if we're looking at it from only our point of view. And if we understand that God is working on us in these trials, working on us from the inside out, if we, if we understand that, then we'll be careful to not judge his work in our lives by things that we can only see with our eyes. Especially another fact that, again, guys, the Bible tells us that we don't see as God sees, Right? And he alone is able to see a finished pattern, which is a beautiful thing that is being created for his glory. And the key that is found to this is in the admonition to count. Okay? Here in the instruction. To count, which translates from the Greek word hegomai, which is a financial term that literally means to evaluate. And the Apostle Paul used the same word several times in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. And and specifically in verse 7 when he wrote and said that when he became a Christian, he counted, when he gave his life to Christ, he counted or he evaluated his life. And in doing so, he set new goals and new priorities. Paul also said in conjunction with this that, that the things that were once important to him then became worthless in light of his experience and of his knowledge of Jesus because this is now what had become valuable to him. And, and his values changed what became valuable to him because he had to stop and evaluate. He had to count. Likewise, when we enter into trials, we're being told to do the same thing, to evaluate, to count, to see what's important to us, to evaluate them in light of the outlook that we're called to have, in light of the understanding that God is doing something for us, and in light of what has become important to us because of that knowledge. And if we're living our lives for the things that matter most, you know what is going to happen? joy. If we're living our lives for the things that matter most and and tossing away those things that we have now counted as worthless, we're going to be filled with joy. Joy in the midst of a trial. For example, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 2, 12 verse 2 tells us this. It says that Jesus was able to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Meaning, the joy of not only returning to heaven, but the joy of one day sharing his glory with each one of us. And this is what Jesus saw as valuable as he went to the cross. There was an evaluation. Consequently, what we value will determine how we evaluate our trials. What do you value? Do you value godliness, holiness, sanctification, purification, God's will. In all of these things, if we value that, then, then this is how we will determine how we evaluate our trials. And if we value comfort more than character, you know what's going to happen? Trials are going to upset us. 
So if you're upset about your trial, ask yourself why. Is it comfort or character? Furthermore, if we value the material things of this world and the physical things of this world more than the spiritual things of God, you will not, we will not be able to count it all as joy. And if we're, if we're only living for the present, for the moment, for the day, for this life, and forget about the future or the eternal, then the trials that we face will make us bitter and not better. How many times have you struggled with that in your own life where you've just become bitter because you're going through this trial and right at the moment, that's all the further you can see because you're so trapped in this life and the, the, the things that are important in this life rather than the future and the things of God. And when we get past that, into that kind of mindset, have that kind of outlook, we're not gonna be bitter. It's gonna be better. You know what? A perfect example of this, you can't go through this study without mentioning Job, right? I mean, if that hasn't already popped into your mind, then you've probably not ever heard of Job. Because Job is, is, a, is a perfect picture of all of these things. And Job was a man who went through many trials, went through many trials, and what we see for the most part is that he had a right outlook through all of it. And this is evident in, in Job chapter 23, verse 10, where he says this, he says this, and he kind of summarizes it all in regards to an outlook, a right outlook and a right attitude. He says, but he, speaking of God, he knows the ways that I take. And when he has tested me, I, he says, shall come forth as gold. And Job could declare this because he stayed focused on the end and he knew that God was through this trial, through these tribulations, that God was refining him into a thing of beauty. So when trials come, we must immediately give thanks to God, take a joyful attitude, and remember that our outlook determines the outcome. And in order, here's, here's where it all should come together, hopefully, is that, as when I say this, remembering that our outlook determines the outcome, and this is what I mean, that in order to end with joy, you must begin with joy. So if you want the outcome of your trial and tribulation to be a joyful thing, if you want to have joy at the end of it, you have to insert joy at the beginning of it. So again, outlook, a joyful outlook, determines a joyful outcome. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Boy, howdy. <laughs> whether you like it or not, right? You see, this word knowing, the second admonition, know. Knowing is what makes it easier to face a trial, guys. Knowing is what makes it easier to face a trial and easier to have joy in them and to be able to reap the benefit from them, okay? Knowing makes it easier to face a trial, to have joy in them, and to reap the benefits from them. In light of this, James, with this admonition to, to, to know, is directing our attention to three specific things. Three things we must know. We must know this. Faith is tested. That's what he's saying. 
faith is tested. Furthermore, we need to know that the, that the testing works for us and not against us. Got to know that. You got to know that the testing, faith is tested, but you also got to know that the testing works for us and not against us. And lastly, we need to know that trials help us mature, help us to spiritually grow. Now, these three things are important for us to know because in the midst of the trial, in the midst of times testing, it doesn't always feel like it's a very good thing, does it? I mean, your brain can be telling you everything that God's word here, you can be reading it and you're going to like, yeah, okay, faith is tested. And I know that the testing is working, is, is a work for me and not against me. But right now, it sure feels like everything and everyone, including you, God, are against me, right? Sometimes it can feel like that. And, and the, 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 knowing, the, the, the knowing here helps to put the things here when they're out of line back in check. Do you get that? And that's really what we're being told here. The three things are, and so these three things are important for us to know in the midst of the trial, again, because it doesn't always feel, the trial and the things that are going on always don't feel like it's a good thing. Now, we've been talking about Abraham a lot, and when God called Abraham, who is the father of faith, Biblically speaking, in that sense, when he called him to live by faith, we see that he was tested many times, many, many, many times. And that testing of faith was in order to, for, it, was, it was for three things. It was to reveal, exercise, and increase Abraham's faith. To reveal his faith, to exercise his faith, and to increase his faith. And guys, such is the case. This is what we need to know. Such is also the case with our own faith. And when God takes us through these times of testing, it's with purpose. It's with the purpose of bringing out the best in us. And, 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 and in that, we can see that God's working for us and not against us. God's working for us and not against us. This word testing is the Greek word Dokumeon, and it and it and it's it can also be translated um, to the word approval, approving. It's approving, or it's an approval. And by Peter's and and, and, and Peter's words in First Peter chapter one verses six through seven helps us understand better what I think James is trying to say here. It's 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 a uh, it's a confirming verse to this same truth. He says. He says, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is saying that, the, that God's testing or God's approval of our faith is precious because it assures us that our faith is genuine. The point is, God knows, guys, what our faith is like, right? God knows what our faith is like. Therefore, we have to automatically understand and assume that the testing is not for the sake of God learning something new about us. It's for the sake of us learning something new about ourselves and then allowing for God, as a result of exposing that to us, allowing for God to then do his work in us. God's wanting to make something known to us about ourselves. 
And it's through the testing. And, and when we know the measure of faith that we have, guys, some of us go, well, it's just a little. But what did Jesus even say about a little bit of faith? But see, the thing is, is when we know the measure of faith that we have, you know what it does is it empowers you. It empowers you. It, it, it fills you full of courage and strength from the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a life full of even greater faith. And at the same time, it causes us to cry out to God and go, God, give me more faith, right? It empowers you. He's like, yeah, I can do this. I got some faith. But at the same time, it goes, but it's not enough faith. Give me more. And you know what? This is so wonderfully exampled in the, Mark, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the account found in Mark chapter 9 where we read about that man who had that demon-possessed son. You remember Jesus was on the mountaintop and his disciples are down below and they're like, they're full of faith and they're casting out demons and they're like, they're like we can't cast this demon out. What the heck? And, and I'm sure at that moment, the guy's like, well, I guess everybody else's demons can be cast out of them and their kids, but not mine. And, and, and this demon was, was a demon that would cast this man's son down and into the fire. And it was a horrific thing if you think about what your kid was going through and, the, and what would take hold of him. And when Jesus was preparing after he'd rebuked his disciples to cast out this demon for this man, he spoke to the boy's father and he questioned them in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, saying, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Because the disciples had just failed and God was trying to, the guy had gone through a test, a test of his faith. And Christ was coming alongside him and going, hey man, if you can believe, all things will be possible to you believe. And we're told in verse 24 that it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears. Sometimes this is how we guys, we are, when God is testing our faith and revealing the work that he's doing and letting us know some things about our faith and about ourselves. We're like this. He says, Lord, I believe, I have faith but help my unbelief. And in that moment of testing, the testing of this man's faith, it was made known to him how much faith he had, but, almost, but also how much faith he lacked and how in need of God he was. Now speaking of trials and the work of God, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, he said, therefore do not lose heart. And that's so appropriate right now because sometimes that's how we feel in the midst of that. But Paul says, he says in application to all of this, therefore we do not lose heart even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man, the work of God, the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, the trial of the tribulation, he says, is working for us a far greater, more exceeding, and eternal weight of glory. To know that God is working for us. So faith is tested by trials, and the testing of our faith is God working for us. What do we have to know in the midst of a trial? That God is working for us. Not against us. And we need to know these things in order to have joy in the midst of the trial. But we need to also know that the testing 
to know the testing, but we need to also know that the testing is so that we might also embrace the work that God is doing. Meaning, the testing of our faith, guys, is designed to spiritually mature us. That's what we've been talking about. To produce, James writes here, patience. To produce patience, endurance, and the ability to keep going even when things get tough and when things are completely out of our control. So in the book of Romans, Paul wrote about this very same thing, and he said in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, he says, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation, as if trials weren't enough, right? It's also tribulations, guys, just so, in case you didn't know. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And when James talks here about the production of patience, listen, he's not telling us that it's some passive, passive acceptance of the circumstances. He's not saying it's an attitude where you just have to go, okay, it's happening to me. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us that patience is perseverance in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty. And it's important for us to know this because impatience and unbelief usually go together, don't they? At least that's how I found it to be true in my life, is is if there's impatience, it's because there's a lot of unbelief going on. And this is important for us to know because just like impatient and unbelief go together, faith and patience goes together. And God wants us to grow up and possess patience because of this. There's much more to it, but, but at the root of it, it's because of this. Because patience is the key to every other blessing of God. Patience and belief. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. It tells us to be followers of them who through faith and patience inherited the promises of God. Furthermore, he goes on in chapter 10, verse 36, author of Hebrews, and he says, for, if you, for you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. Faith and patience. So patience is something that we should be asking God for, but as well, or, or be offering, but we should be asking God for, but as we all know, the way to develop this, 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 patience into our character, the way that that happens is that we have to be given the chance to exercise patience. And the testing of our faith, which we're being told here, is what provides these opportunities. Sadly, patience cannot be attained by reading a book. (laughs) I know. Or by listening to a sermon even a good one, or even by just simply praying a prayer. God, please just supernaturally, miraculously, immediately give me patience. Make me a patient person. It it does not happen. We must go through the difficulties of life. And in doing so, we must trust God. We must obey him. And by this, patience will be produced. And when when this happens, when patience is produced, you know what happens? It helps us to face the trial with an attitude of joy, joyfully. Verse 4, 
But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Third admonition, let. Count, know, and let. And, and this may seem like uh, something you might, we just might just, this is so important, but yet it's something we can just, just go right over, this let part of the equation. Count it, know it, and let. And with this word let, James is pointing out the fact that there has to be a surrender on our part, right? There has to be a surrender on our part, a surrender to the will of God in order to become perfect, become that perfect and complete work of God that he's speaking of here. Someone who is lacking nothing. And it's important for us to understand that God won't and can't build our character without our cooperation. Here's an example. Try to do that in your own kids without their cooperation. As much as we want to shape them and form them and, 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 and mold them into what we or what we think God wants them to be, we can't build that character in them without their cooperation, right? That's one of the reasons why we do the, when we do the parenting class here, we do the one that's called shepherding the heart of a child because it has to be at the heart level and only God can do that. And so the things that we do, the environment that we create as we're reaching into the heart of our children is, is bringing into this place where we're allowing them to let or choose to allow God to develop that kind of character in them. Same is true with us. We have to let. We have to be cooperative. But we can rest assured, here's the cool thing about it, is God's given a tool for us to help us in that aid of, of, of bringing us our children to the place where they will let and it's called discipline. And as a matter of fact, God speaks about discipline in regards to children as um, the rod. Well, the same is true in relationship to us, right? We can rest assured that if we resist God's will, that he will love us enough to discipline us, to chasten us, the Bible says. And bring us into that place where we will allow for, let God's work to be done in our lives. And as has been already mentioned, we know that God's goal for our life is that spiritual maturity. He wants us to grow up, just like we want our kids to grow up and be mature. And Scripture tells us that he who has begun this good work in us will be faithful to complete it. So according to what James is saying here in verse 4, we can see that God wants a finished product. And not finished in the sense that we're perfected here on this earth, but a finished product that is growing in maturity and becoming complete in the Lord. But we must allow God's work to be done. We've got to let it. We must allow his work to be done. Sadly, I point that out because the truth is, is we can spend a lot of time and effort sheltering ourselves from the trials of life. Right? We're not going to step out there because we know that it might put itself in this place where we can experience a trial. So what do we do? We try to remain in this place of comfortableness. Don't come into this safe place, right? No, God. No, God. In addition to that, we spend a lot of time and effort trying to escape the trial or the testing, the tribulation, once it's come upon us, do we not? Rather than just embracing it, counting it all joy, knowing that God's doing a work. Letting him do the work. That place again of submission, 
And as a result, guys, we miss out on the opportunity to spiritually grow up. And when I think about that, I think about the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Lap after lap after lap after lap before they were allowed to enter into the promised land. And why did they enter in? Because of unbelief. They didn't let God take them in. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, outlined three works that are involved in making a complete Christian life. Okay, now think about this about in relationship to God's plan of salvation, like I already kind of mentioned. Because in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul first says that there is a work that God does for us. It's the cross. It's salvation, referring to the completed work of Christ on the cross. That's a work that God does for us in regards to the plan of salvation. Then Paul continues on in verse 9, and he tells of the work, in addition to the work that God does for us, he speaks about the work that God does in us. And he says this, he says in verse 9, we are his workmanship, referring to the work that God does in us. And this work is known in, in Christianese as the work of sanctification. And, and we know that this happens as God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he builds character and we become more like his son Jesus Christ, we're told. But Paul goes on in verse 10 and he points out the third work of God, which is the work that God does through us. God does a work for us, he does a work in us, and then he does a work through us, Paul says. And he says this by saying, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And now I point this out because, because God had a plan to save us. And often that plan, from our point of view, is, is we limit that to the work of the cross and what he's done for us. But God says, that's only part of the equation in, the, in this plan of saving you, because in this plan of saving you, it's a threefold work. It's a work for you, it's a work in you, and it's a work through you. And God had a plan to save us, and this plan to save us also included a plan to do a work in us so that his work ultimately might be done through us. His work might ultimately be done through us. But God cannot work in us without his consent. There must be this surrender to his will, to God's will. In this, we need to see that the mature person does not argue or complain against God's will. He lets, he willingly accepts, and he obeys it joyfully is what we're being told here. So if we try to go through trials without a surrender, we will end up acting like a spoiled brat, a little kid who's throwing a temper tantrum rather than a mature adult. And you know what? That's how we act, Paul's saying, or we're being told here, James tells us, when we don't let, when we don't count it all as joy. The prophet Jonah is a perfect picture of someone who would not surrender his will to God and acted like a little whiny baby. See, God had commanded Jonah to go preach to the Gentiles at Nineveh, and he refused. And we know he refused because he wanted them to, to be condemned. He said, God, they're going to repent, and you're going to forgive them, and I want to have nothing to do with that. They deserve to be smoked. And he's, he's being a whiny little baby because he wasn't, he wasn't submitting to the will of God. And if we remember from the very last chapter of the book of Jonah, we see Jonah, and then that's exactly what had happened. He, 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 he um, 
Well, let me back up. I'm getting ahead of myself. So we have to point out that in the unletting, with the not letting, what did God do to Jonah? First of all, he put him in the belly of a whale. He disciplined him, right? And through the disciplining, the, the whale was moving. And, and the whale, just by chance, when he barfed Jonah up, it was on the shores of Nineveh. Coincidence, right? But, but this brought Jonah to a, 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 it was a process that God was doing in him, right? So that God could do the work through him. And it was a process of bringing Jonah to submission. So Jonah, after being barfed out of the well, he's all kind of, he still isn't really letting God do the work in him, but he's allowing God to do the work through him. And he's all, fine, I'm going to go. And he brushes off the whale barf, and, and he, he goes into the city. And, and we know that Jonah, at that moment, he's not obeying God from the heart, but he, and in doing so, he did not let patience have its perfect work. And he ended up acting like a spoiled little brat, did he not? If you remember from the last chapter of the book, we see Jonah at the end of this thing sitting outside of the city pouting hoping that God would still send judgment upon the city of Nineveh. And in this, Jonah was impatient. What was he first impatient with? The sun that was beating down on him, right? He's angry and impatient at the sun. And with the wind, and then with the gourd, and then with the worm, and then even impatient with God, even though God was being very patient with him. But in his patience, what we see is that God was weaning Jonah out of his childish ways. And I love that. And in the end, Jonah's heart was brought into a godly submission. And, and, and in doing so, a work of compassion, the work of compassion for others was done inside of Jonah. Likewise, God has to sometimes wean us away from our childish behaviors and our immature attitudes. But if we do not surrender him, you know what's going to happen? Not only are you not going to grow, you will become more, more immature. There will be a greater immaturity. And, and it's the principle, okay, I talked about a principle and an illustration. This is the principle of, 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 of that is being conveyed to us or illustrated to us in verses 9 through 11. You see, the, again, the idea is, is if we're not allowing, if we're not letting God grow us, then we're going to rely upon something else and that reliance upon something else will bring forth spiritual immaturity not spiritual maturity again listen to that listen with that principle listen to verse 9 when he says then therefore if you will i want to insert that he says let the lowly lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away for no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers with the grass its flower falls and its beauty appearance perishes so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits so there's a, a there's a direction there, there's a there's a there's a result is, uh, that that happens when you don't let god there's something that takes place a fading a withering and and in other words it's not our it's not our our, our, our material resources or any other kind of thing of this life that we can rely upon that'll carry us through these testings of life that are being talked about here. It's our spiritual resources. It's letting God. And it's only to the extent that we allow for God to do his perfect work in us 
making us com- that, that, that will make us complete and, and really lacking nothing. Something here that I mentioned last week that we all should want. And lastly, if and when we realize that we are lacking, then we're to ask God. So it's not an issue of, of if we will, it's when we will. Through the process, you're going to realize, God's going to bring you through this, that you're lacking something, right? If the testing is ordered to do a work, to reveal something to us, not only the faith that we have, but the faith that we lack, or, or the patience that we lack, or the, the godly character that we lack, or the compassion for others, that whatever it is that God's trying to show us in this, is, is when we realize what that thing is, the fourth admonition that we're given is that we need to ask for help. We don't turn to our own resources. Because if we do so, we're going to wither away. We're not going to grow spiritually. You're going to go through this whole thing, you're going to realize, and it's going to amount to nothing productive in your life because you didn't let God, and in the not letting, you didn't ask. And you didn't ask, it says, in faith. Verses 5 and 6, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So, what is this asking? It's really just asking with that believing heart. It's asking with a heart that has no doubt. <clears throat> and I know that's impossible for humans to do. It's a battle that we struggle with. And so it's not about this, this, this name it and claim it kind of, well, you didn't, you didn't get it because you just didn't have enough faith. That's, that's not what's being spoken of here. But it's with this attitude, again, this attitude to the trial of going, okay, God, you've been faithful to not only take me through this, to test me, to make these things known to me, to reveal what's going on inside of me, but God, I know that you're the person that I'm going to turn to. That's without the doubting. It's not that you don't, you don't doubt that, God, I'm messed up, and I don't know. It's not that kind of doubting that God can't do it. We know that he can, but it's, it's, that it's, it's who are you turning to? What are you turning to in that time of, of need, in that time when you realize that you're lacking? And that's where the non-doubting comes from. And when we're going through God-ordained difficulties, we're called to, I love that, by the way. That wasn't mine. I stole that. God-ordained difficulties rather than self-inflicted, right? So when you're going through a, it makes it sound a little better, a God-ordained difficulty. Brother, you're just going through a God-ordained difficulty. You know what? We're told to ask for wisdom, to ask God for wisdom. And it's been said that knowledge, guys, is the ability to take things apart. A lot of us have knowledge and not wisdom because wisdom is the ability to put them back together again. Therefore, wisdom is simply the right use of knowledge. And according to our text, wisdom is what is needed when we are going through a trial. We need to know how to put it all back together. And God knows. Yet, the truth is, wisdom is not typically what I find myself praying for when I'm going through a trial. Typically, I find myself asking for strength, for grace, for my circumstances to change, and even for deliverance. But wisdom, this right use of knowledge, is needed so we will not waste the opportunity that God has given to us to mature, to grow up, to be complete, to be lacking nothing. 
And this is because godly wisdom helps us understand how to use or to utilize the circumstances of the trials, the circumstances of the testing for our good and for God's glory. That's what it's about. It's not about the end result as far as the circumstances and how they all play out in maybe a way we want or don't want, but it's the circus in how to, do, to, to capitalize on the situation so that I and my heart is brought into submission and I grow. Now, James not only tells us what to ask for, he also describes how we should ask, saying in verse 6, to ask in faith without, da- without doubting. And in this verse, James is comparing that doubting believer to the waves of the sea, which are driven and tossed by the wind. And um, thanks for singing that song, Debbie, about, you know, that ocean song. I think that's one of the most beautiful songs there is. And, and, and I, I love that because it just points us to this exact same kind of truth. And as, as James uses this illustration of the doubting believer being tossed by all the waves of the sea, which are driven by the wind, what it does is it paints a picture of someone who is up one minute and down the next. And man, that's a horrific place to be in the midst of a trial, is it not? I mean, or it's like, just the circumstances are driving you. It's like you're up, you're down, you're up, you're down, you're up, you're down. And it's like, God, I just want to have, I just want to just, even if I can just get to here, you know? Or there's just some stability or some, some constant. And God says, that's available. He says, that's available for us. And, and, and that, that, that up and down is the unsettling experience of that double-minded man asking without doubting. And if we're doubting in the midst of the trial and the testing, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be bobbing. You're going to be drowning. A good example of this is also seen in Matthew 14. That passage of Scripture with Peter walking on the water, right? Where we read about this experience. And in this account, we're told that Peter stepped out of the boat in faith. And he began to walk on the water to Jesus. And it was his faith that kept him afloat. And Peter was able to walk on the water until he began to doubt. And he began to doubt, and he began to sink, even as he is walking on the water to Jesus, because he doubted. And in verse 31, Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's a good question that we need to ask when we're told to, when we need to ask ourselves, for when we're in the midst of the, tr- the trial, or if we are in the midst of the trial, why am I doubting? Why am I doubting? And let me give you a hint. It's not because of your circumstances. The circumstances aren't what causes us to doubt. It's what we're looking at. It's who are we seeking the wisdom from that causes us to doubt. You see, we know that Peter began to doubt simply because he took his eyes off of Jesus. And, and, and in doing so, he became distracted by the winds of the waves, the wind and the waves, and he ceased to walk by faith in that moment, and he began to sink. Got his eyes off Jesus and onto the storm. He was a double-minded man, and he almost drowned. Because of this, it's right to conclude that if Peter had kept his eye on Jesus, he would not have began to sink beneath the water. And the point is, God will give us all that we need to get through the trial. All we have to do is ask. And when we ask in faith, we stay above the waves because asking in faith is the act of simply keeping our eyes fixed upon him. That's what it means to ask by faith. So, 
there it is. Count it, know it, let and ask. And uh, I have more, but you're just going to have to come back next Wednesday for, for more of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for these admonitions and this encouragement, uh, these encouraging things, Father, that um, really offers a promise to us. And Lord, if we're not in the midst of a trial now, we expect that we're going to be in one um, at some point in the future. I pray, God, that we would, exp- we would respond in the right way and we would trust you. And God, that we would have this wonderful testimony of, of, of how your word is true and how it can be trusted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.